take your Bibles and open with me this morning up to Matthew chapter 14. Continuing in our series, the gospel of the kingdom, what we have seen that has begun to happen starting in chapter 13 and will continue on through chapter 17 is that Jesus has begun to withdraw from public ministry and he's devoting more and more time to prayer and to teaching just his disciples, to instructing them in the word of God. When he does teach publicly, as we've seen in chapter 13, he's teaching with parables that serves two purposes, one to reveal the truth to the sheep and to conceal it from the goats, uh, to preach in such a way that there are lessons to be learned with the parables, but only for those who have ears to hear. As we get into chapter 14, Matthew actually kind of plays with the chronology a little bit because of what's happened. We're getting into chapter 14, looking at the death of John the Baptist this morning. And as Jesus has begun to withdraw, as he's not participating as much in a public type ministry, we have to realize that Actually, by the time we get to the text here in chapter 14 and what's actually happening in the ministry of Jesus with his disciples, John the Baptist has already been dead for about a year. So it's not that now we find out that he has died. He was in prison. We covered that earlier in the book of Matthew. And the result of that almost a year that he spent in prison was that he was put to death. And this is the account given to us here. But it's given to us in such a way because, as we see in verse 1, at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus and said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead and therefore these powers are at work in him. But we know as we're going to read about what happened for John the Baptist to be put to death, we know this has been about a year that it's happened. And now Herod there in Galilee is hearing reports now of the ministry of Jesus. He had been in the area. He had been in Capernaum. He had been ministering in Nazareth. He had been preaching and performing miracles, healing the sick, casting out demons, and even raising the dead. And as he's doing these things, word reaches Herod. And as Herod hears about the miracles of Jesus, his first thought is not, could this be the Messiah? Now, we know there are those in the crowd who have thought this. They're beginning to put the pieces together with the help of the Holy Spirit, of course, and they're beginning to think this guy looks like the Savior. He looks like the Messiah. Well, that's not where Herod's mind goes. Herod's mind immediately goes back to the guilt that is driving him because of what he did to John the Baptist. So we're going to look at the players here at Herod, at Jesus, and at John. We're going to look at Herod's guilty conscience and see what it was that he did when he executed John the Baptist. This is Herod Antipas, known as Herod the Tetrarch. A tetrarch means a ruler of fourth. So he was a partial ruler of the kingdom left over from Herod the Great. Herod the Great, you know, was there when Jesus was born. He was the one who sent word after the wise men left and didn't tell him where Jesus was. He sent word to have all of the boys two years and under in Bethlehem executed and put to death. It was Herod who was afraid to lose his throne. Well, as happens to all earthly rulers... Eventually, he lost his throne. He died a horrible death and actually passed on what was his to three of his sons. And they began to govern over what had belonged to Herod the Great. There were brothers, half-brothers, in fact, Philip and Aristobulus and Antipas, who is the Herod we're talking about now. So all of these brothers from different mothers, literally, because that's the kind of guy Herod was, now have been given a portion of their father's kingdom. 
Throughout the course of their life, then, Philip married Aristobulus' daughter. So we already know this is a messed up family. This, this well, let's just confess it. This is the, the Palestinian version of Arkansas, if you will. Aristobulus decides that his daughter would be a good fit for Philip, his half-brother. So Philip, the uncle, marries Herodias, the niece. Aristobulus also had a son who is Herodias's brother that was Agrippa. And we know him when Paul appears before Felix and Agrippa to give an account of his testimony before he's sent to Rome. So Herodias is married to Philip, her uncle, and now also is going to have a relationship with Herod Antipas, who also is her uncle, because she's not content with her uncle Philip. So she is seduced by her uncle. Uh, Yeah, see, it just... It's like a soap. It's like days of our lives in Palestine. Okay. And for those of you who got that reference, you're old. Okay. But this, this was the family dynamic. It was immoral. It was messed up. Now Herod, actually Herod Antipas here was married first before he married Herodias. He was married to the daughter of Aretas, who was an Arabian king where he was given to rule in Galilee in the North there bordering on some of Arabia. There was a king there and he thought, I can make peace if I marry his daughter. And it was an arranged marriage to bring peace between the two peoples. Well, then Herod got carried away in his lust, decided to seduce his niece who was married to his brother. And when he did that, first he had to divorce the wife that he had married, who was the daughter of the king. Now, when he divorced the daughter of the king, the king declared war. You can't just divorce my daughter. And war broke out, and Herod Antipas was almost completely wiped out. The only thing that saved him was he put out a distress call to Rome, and the Roman army came and put down the enemy and reinstated Herod Antipas. So he had already lost face. He couldn't govern. His family was a mess. He was completely driven by his lust wherever he went. He would go and get whatever he wanted, and he really just wanted to be entertained. He wanted John to appear to him and perform tricks. Same thing he did with Jesus. He wanted to see Jesus before Jesus was crucified so that he could see Jesus perform, as he put it, perform some tricks for me. These miracles, these signs that attested to who Jesus was as the Messiah, Herod thought it was like a circus act and that Jesus was just a magician. Come and perform some tricks for me. Well, here he divorces his wife. He causes war. He's saved by the Romans. He seduces his niece, who's married to his brother, convinces her to divorce Philip. All of this, of course, in violation of Leviticus, beyond even the family relations. Leviticus is clear. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It was the idea that that was Philip's wife and should not have gone to be with Herod Antipas. And that's where John the Baptist got into trouble. Because as John the Baptist preached... He didn't hold back the truth of the word of God. And he confronted Herod and Herodias. We know in the text, as, it, as he, he was concerned that Jesus was actually John the Baptist raised from the dead. Herod had laid hold of John, bound him, put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Uh, understand, the scripture still says that it's Philip's wife, not, not validating the divorce and the remarriage. So this is all just absolute immorality. Because John had said to him, it's not lawful for you to have her. And although he wanted to put him to death, he feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. So with all that is going on within the household, I want to add another layer 
to Herod for you to understand Herod's belief system. Herod now was a practicing Sadducee. Now, what were the Sadducees? They were the liberals of the day. They did not, they were the progressives, if you will. They didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe in the supernatural. They denied the resurrection. You'll remember that Paul used this to his benefit in discussions with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Paul being a Pharisee, he appealed to the resurrection of Christ from the dead. And then the Pharisees and the Sadducees fought each other instead of fighting Paul. Well, the Sadducees didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe in a resurrection. But I want you to see how his sensuality drove him to superstition. Because now Herod hears about the miracles of Jesus. And he's so guilty over the what he did to John the Baptist and how all of that was played out in time that he actually began to suspect that Jesus wasn't another person. But a year later, it was John the Baptist having been raised from the dead. Now, I want you to understand that's a significant superstition. It's really significant when you consider he's a Sadducee and in his creed denied resurrection. But I want to show you what sin does. Guilt for sin will drive us to abandon our strongly held beliefs. Herod would have argued with the Pharisees all day long that there was no such thing as a resurrection, but he murdered John the Baptist, put him to death as a result of what we're going to see happened in his palace, made a rash oath, put him to death, didn't have a right to put him to death, didn't have Jewish law, didn't have Roman law on his side, decided to do it anyway to please these women in his life. And when he did it, he was so guilt ridden over it that a year later, when he hears about miracles happening in his region, he immediately thinks that John the Baptist, who is a prophet, has been raised from the dead and is coming for him. He threw out all of his beliefs. He was driven by this superstition. He was consumed with sensuality. And this is how he governed. It was bad enough that eventually he wanted more of, of his father's kingdom. And there was a rift between the brothers and his nephew, his now wife, who's not really his wife, who is really his niece because she's his uncle now who has a brother, Agrippa. Agrippa actually reported his sister and new husband to Caligulus and said he's going to commit treason against you and against Rome. And so Herod Antipas and Herodias were banished to Gaul. There can be worse places to be banished when you realize that Gaul is France. But he was banished to France, stripped of all of his title and his claim and his family wealth, and died in absolute poverty. He wanted so much and he lost everything because he was driven by his lust. That is Herod. Now what draws Herod's attention is the miracles of Jesus. What Jesus had been doing raising the dead, casting out demons, teaching, causing a sensation, drawing crowds. You see, Herod wanted the crowds for himself, just like his father had wanted to be king and could not bear that another king was being born. And so he was willing to put to death, knowing, understand what Herod the Great did, knowing the prophecy, calling for the teachers, understanding that the Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem. Herod the Great knew that Jesus was the Messiah. The wise men told him so. He knew then where he was going to be born. And instead of welcoming the Messiah as the new king, he determined to preserve his own crown by trying to put Jesus to death. It's no wonder when you look at the world, when you look at the world being lovers of darkness rather than lovers of the light. It's no wonder that from the very moment that that star shone and those wise men came, that the first response from sinful men to the birth of the Savior was to try to kill him. 
This is long before we get to the crucifixion. This is long before we get to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes wanting to put Jesus to death. This is Herod the Great wanting to kill a baby because he was afraid that baby could actually be the Messiah who would unseat his kingdom. So to hold on to his kingdom, he was willing to attempt to kill the Savior. This is mankind's natural stance against Christ. Whenever he appears, they want to kill him. People tell you that you should be like Jesus and that you should ask the question, what would Jesus do? I would take it a step farther. Leonard Ravenhill said it this way. He said, we need to ask ourselves, what did Jesus do? And we need to do what Jesus did. And we need to do it understanding that when Jesus did it, the response was kill him. When we do what Jesus did, the world is not going to embrace us. The world is not going to be thrilled with the message that we preach. When we talk to them about their need for a savior, about their alienation from God, their reaction is going to be deadly. They will persecute you because they hate Jesus. I've seen it. There was a sign at a protest here just a few years ago where there was a religious group that had gathered and was proclaiming that Jesus was coming back soon. Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. But the counter protesters held up a sign that said, let Jesus come back. We'll kill him again. And this should not be shocking to us. This has always been the world's response to Christ. Now, we say this to the church to warn the church. If the world is embracing you and loving you and wants to hear what you have to say, you are not preaching the gospel to them. Because when you preach the gospel to them, their gut reaction is to stop the message, to stop the messenger. And if they could, they would kill Jesus all over again. When we look at the reality of who Christ is and the reality of our fallenness, the sad thing here is that Herod thought it was his kingdom. But all authority comes from God. Ultimately, it's all his. That's why we sang, rejoice, the Lord is king and Jesus shall reign this morning because Jesus is the king of kings. If there is a government on this earth that has authority and power, it's been granted by God. And as it's abused, it'll be taken. We've seen nations rise and fall. Here's the sad thing for us in the United States of America, by the way. We are a very young nation. And we think the world revolves around us. We're just another nation that's going to come and that's going to go. Because when Christ does come back, he comes to rule the nations with a rod of iron. And how much more are we going to give an account as a nation with all that we've been given from the word of God and our foundation in scripture? It's the same thing Jesus said to Capernaum. You've seen all that I've done and yet you've rejected me. It's going to be better in the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah than for you. For a young nation... We've fallen a very far way from where we started. You look at what our nation calls good and what it calls evil. You look at what we participate in and you look at so much of the church that is silent and anemic. That'll do whatever the government tells them to do, whatever they tell them to do it. We need prophets like John the Baptist. Prophets will stand up to rulers and to those in authority and tell them that the true authority is the word of God. They only rule by that authority from God. And if God so chooses to remove it, he will. John warned. Jesus came preaching the same gospel that John did. What did John start to preach? We read it earlier in Matthew. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This was the message. This was the radical message that got John and Jesus put to death. The real king is here now. His kingdom has come. And all the other kingdoms of the world 
will bow before it. One day we're going to see that happen. We read about it in the book of Revelation, the destruction of Babylon. We're going to see all the kingdoms of the world smashed by the kingdom of God and of Christ. And we're going to be singing and rejoicing and shouting glory to God as he unleashes wrath on the world. Not something that we should want now. Those who are under wrath and under judgment, we need to be praying for their salvation before it's too late. We need to warn them to flee the wrath to come. And that's what John did. And that's what Jesus did. John even came out and he said, who told you to flee the wrath to come? They could have turned around and said, well, it was you. Don't you remember when you said that? His point was, are you really fleeing the wrath to come? Or are you just coming out to see a show in the wilderness? We know this is what happened again in Luke 23 when Herod saw Jesus. He was exceedingly glad. The, the word here that's used for Herod's joy at seeing Jesus sent to him from Pilate before his crucifixion was that Herod was almost giddy. For he had desired for a long time to see him because he had heard many things about him and he hoped to see some miracle done by him. He wanted a miracle done right there in person. Then he, he questioned him with many words, but he, Jesus, answered him nothing. And the chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently accused him. Then Herod, with his men of war, treated him with contempt and mocked him and arrayed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. That very day, Pilate and Herod became friends with each other, for previously they had been at enmity with each other. They now had a common enemy, the Son of God. And so they became fast friends. Jesus came to upset the balance of power in the world, as it appears. You understand that the balance of power really was not upset because Jesus has always been ruling and reigning. His kingdom is not new, as we see it manifested in time, and we see what he's come to do through his first advent, and we wait for his second advent. Think about the description for what the apostles did. After Jesus came and they went and they preached throughout wherever they went, what was it was said of them? These men turned the world upside down. You understand they didn't really turn the world upside down. It was already upside down. They turned it right side up with the preaching of the word of God, with the preaching of the gospel. And they were opposed. Jesus warned the disciples they would be opposed. We see what happened to the disciples. And you realize that all of them, including Matthias, who replaced Judas, all of them, save for John, were martyred were put to death. Wherever they went, they eventually ended being executed because they followed Christ. This is a, a grim reminder for us, especially as we're talking about what happened to John the Baptist this morning. If you follow Jesus Christ, it will cost you everything. It will cost you your life. Even beyond the possibility of martyrdom, it will cost you your life to follow Jesus. That, that's his words. If any man would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. To follow Christ is a life of death, death to self. That's the hard one. Death to sin, we don't mind that one so much because we look forward one day to being finally rid of sin. We need to be reminded that we have power over it now. We've been freed from its power now. We need to live like it now. We have new life in us. The life that we lose, it's worth losing. Who wants to hold on to life in this world when you can have life eternal with Christ? The life that he gives us. It's as we talk and as we minister to families who have lost loved ones. And there's always the struggle to try to treat them and to hope that they'll live longer and that they'll stay and that they'll be here for us. But if they're a believer, how much better to let them go on and to be with Jesus? 
to know that death for us is not a mystery. It's not. We still treat death like a mystery. We still refer to the unknown. We know what's on the other side of death for the believer. It's Jesus. Amen? Amen. We need to live like that's the truth. That if we do burn up or burn out, when we come to the end of this life in this fallen world, we wake up in the arms of Jesus. This is John the Baptist now in a dungeon for almost a year. This is a palace that's built about eight miles north of the tip of the Dead Sea. And as Herod Antipas was there and had John the Baptist imprisoned there, he was put in a dungeon. Now, this this palace is actually built up on a hill and it's multi-levels and you've got the best views of the area where this has been built. You can literally see for miles and miles and miles. But they dug down into the mountain and they dug out an area for a dungeon. And it's a dark place. You can go and you can actually see it today. You can still see where they had people chained to the walls. And there's no natural light. No natural sunlight can get into this dungeon. And John the Baptist was there for almost a year. We wonder then when he comes to ask the question, when his disciples are trying to minister to him in this condition, and he sends his disciples, go and ask Jesus, are you the one or are we waiting for another? You know what John was expecting as he was in prison in the palace in the dungeon with Herod, who he had preached the truth to and against. He knew who Jesus was. He was the Messiah's forerunner. He knew that Jesus was coming to establish a kingdom. He had preached the same message. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You know what John wanted in prison? He wanted Jesus to initiate the kingdom right then and rescue him from Herod. You can't blame John for that, can you? Not at all. Look, Look at some of the things we deal with in life, and none of it's as bad as being chained to a wall in a dungeon for almost a year. There in his misery... He would be brought out from time to time. And whenever he was brought out, he preached the gospel. But he also suffered. And as he suffered, there was a cost. And it opened his mind to doubts. Are you the one or do we look for another? If if you're the one, it's almost a plea from John. If you're the one, come and get me out of here. Come and undo this injustice. Come and set this right. Of course, at this point, Jesus did not. Jesus knew who John was. John knew who Jesus was. He came preaching in the wilderness, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This was he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. As John preached, as there were those who repented, those who wanted to welcome the coming of the Messiah, they submitted to John's baptism in the Jordan River. We know he was a righteous man. You know, even Herod thought he was righteous. In Mark 6, in this same account, it says, Therefore Herodias held it against him and wanted to kill him, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just and holy man. And he protected him. And when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. He wanted to hear what John had to say. He thought he was just. He thought he was holy. He thought he was a prophet. And it was to the point that after he'd been put to death, this guilt grew in his conscience. He thought perhaps he had been righteous enough to be raised from the dead. Jesus gives us his assessment of John 
In Matthew 11, 11, assuredly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. John the Baptist, in Jesus' estimation, the greatest man ever born of woman. And here he is, a prophet preaching with power, hated by Herod and by Herodias. Both of them wanted to kill him, but Herod was afraid. He knew he was just. He knew he was holy. He knew that the crowds thought he was a prophet. So Herod, for a time, actually even protected John the Baptist. But now we come to the point where he begins to believe that he had been led to do something that he shouldn't have done and that John was raised from the dead, that he was going to come back. When we look at it, Spurgeon describes Herod's conscience. He said he had enough conscience to scare him, but not enough to change him. Herod could bear to do the deed, but he could not bear to be told that he had committed an unlawful act. Is that not the world in which we live? People are shocked when we tell them what they did instead of being shocked that they did what we're telling them they did. They're more offended by us pointing sin out from the word of God than from actually committing the sin. When we look at Herod's motivation here, we see that he was angry. He already had the heart of murder. He and Herodias both wanted to kill John. He feared him. But even more than fearing him, he feared the crowd. As John had preached, it says in verse 5, although he wanted to put him to death, he feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. He didn't want to upset the crowd. He didn't want to upset the people. This was a man, again, driven by sensuality and by superstition. He wanted to try to keep everybody happy. You understand, you can't keep everybody happy all the time, can you? You can't even keep some of the people happy all the time. That's not the way it works in a fallen world. Herod, expecting to have more authority and influence than he did, actually crumbles before his wife and her daughter. He has a birthday. When Herod's birthday was celebrated, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. Now, there are some, Spurgeon actually points this out. There are some who take that this was Herod's birthday party, and they say that Christians now should not observe birthdays because bad things happen when you dance at a birthday party. Well, Spurgeon was a Baptist, so he's not dancing anyway. But he said, look, don't think that the problem here is the birthday party. The problem is how they celebrated, because how they would celebrate, and this it, it's disgusting, I'll just warn you. When you had a king or a prince or someone who had a birthday, you would have all of the male heirs and all the rest of the men in the family would gather and they would have a big stag party. And they would bring in slaves and female dancers and they would be entertained. They would be drunk. They would feast and drink for days. And this is what Herod has done. And Herodias has a plan. She knows how to get John the Baptist. She knows how to fulfill her desire to have him killed. And so what happens is that when Herod has his birthday and as this is going on and as they are celebrating, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. Two things that we know about her, not from scripture, but from Josephus. Josephus tells us that her name was Salome. And he tells us that she was probably about 14 years old. So Herodias takes her teenage daughter and has her dance seductively in front of all of these men, knowing that in their drunken state, she could manipulate them to get whatever she wanted. 
This is the level of wickedness here. Not beyond using her own daughter, Herod's own niece. Remember, Herodias was his niece, and this was his niece's daughter. His stepdaughter now. And he is so enamored with her and her dance that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Now, now this is how you know that he's out of his mind. For someone to be so protective to hold on to and even expand all that he's got, to be driven to a point where he says in an outburst in front of a room full of people, whatever you want, I'll give you. Mark tells us that when he went on, he said, I'll I'll give you half my kingdom. Even up to half my kingdom, whatever you want, name it. She answered immediately. I have to think that he might have immediately realized he had done something wrong because she had an answer prepared. And she immediately answered. It said she had been prompted by her mother saying, give me John the Baptist's head here on a platter. We're told the king was sorry. But this is not repentance. This is guilt. This is conviction. Nevertheless, because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he commanded it to be given her. He did not have to fulfill this oath. It was a rash oath. There's all sorts of excuses not to do what he had said he would do. Uh, By the way, we do that this way. We make a promise to somebody and then we say, ah, just kidding. He could have taken it back, but he didn't. He sent to have John killed instantly. I have to wonder about John's experience here. He's in prison. He's only let out a few times. When he is let out, we're told it's so that Herod can hear him. Herod wanted to hear him preach. Now, it's amazing to me that Herod was so convicted and so offended by what John preached, but then when he would bring him out of the dungeon to preach. I think it's because deep down, God's word is impressed on all of our hearts. Deep down, Herod knew that what John was saying was true, but he was powerless to do anything about it. So as the chains rattled and as the dungeon was opened up and as they came in to John the Baptist, I have to wonder if John sitting there thought, oh, I'm going to have to preach to Herod again. And instead he was instantly beheaded. They brought his head out on a silver platter to lay before the women. As this happened, the king was sorry, but nevertheless, because of the oaths and because of the crowd and those who sat with him, he commanded it to be given her. So he sent and had John beheaded in prison and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl and she brought it to her mother. This is the level of depravity to which Herod had sunk. He simply could not ever be satisfied and neither could the people around him. You would have thought that this would have satisfied them. We don't know what kind of response they had other than to be pleased that John was dead. But it's not too long after this before everything is stripped away from them and they are sent into exile as well. He made a rash oath. He was sorry without repentance. And while we grieve for John and we know that Jesus was moved because when Jesus heard what had happened to John, he departed from there. Verse 13 says by boat to a deserted place by himself. The phraseology literally is, when Jesus heard about the death of John the Baptist, he went to a lonely place. Jesus took the disciples and wanted to go and be away from everything. To be alone. Because you see, here we have the last Old Testament prophet 
who's put to death. And Jesus being the first New Testament prophet, the prophet, priest, and king, who just two years later would also be put to death. Here is John, the first martyr, for his cousin, for the Savior, for the one for whom he was the forerunner. Spurgeon said, oh, what glory to go from prison to paradise. As his body then was delivered to his disciples, as he had suffered and died, it says in verse 12, then his disciples came and took away the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. And again, I, I, I love Spurgeon. When Spurgeon wrote the commentary that I'm using on Matthew, this is the last thing that Spurgeon ever wrote before he died. His commentary on Matthew. He was in France, actually, trying to recover from illness, from gout, from bouts of depression. His body was racked just because of the stress and the pressure of dealing with the downgrade in the church. The church there in London actually begged him to take more vacations and to go to places that would be helpful for him and beneficial for his health. The last thing he did before he died was to write this commentary on Matthew. And when Spurgeon died, he was only 57 years old. But he makes a point here from verse 12. To give hope for the dying. He notes the disciples came and took the took away the body and buried it. Spurgeon said there's a glorious truth here. It does not say the disciples came and took away the body and buried him. I'll let y'all figure out who that is. So the disciples came and took away the body and buried it. Spurgeon's point there was that when they took the body away and they buried it, they weren't burying John. John was no longer there. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. He had gone on to paradise. He had gone on to heaven. So what was left behind, this physical body that was going to be buried and that was going to decay and that was going to await for the resurrection, it was just his body. It was not him. Now we have a difficulty with this because when we bury loved ones and visit and care for the graves, we have to realize if they died in Christ, they're not here. They're not at that grave. They're not in that coffin. They're with Christ. When we sing the hymn face to face with Christ, my Savior. This is the reality for those who have gone on for John the Baptist to go and to be the first seated under the throne from the New Testament era, crying out for vengeance from God on those who had killed him, knowing that that will come when Christ comes again. When we see him with the pantheon of martyrs, willing to give his life for Jesus. We say willing. He really didn't have a choice, did he? He was put in prison and he was beheaded. He didn't have a say. He didn't get to vote. But he went from prison 
to paradise. When we look at what the New Testament tells us, in that great passage on the resurrection, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, the body is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. This was Paul's conclusion. And this is what John experienced. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, that is the grave. Where is your victory? The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Oh, death, where is your sting? To lose loved ones, to lose church members, it causes grief. It causes sorrow. I happen to think it's the most difficult part of being a pastor. Preaching the funerals of church members who have died. There is a loss here. But we need to adjust our thinking. Because for that person who has passed on. We say passed away. They haven't passed away. They haven't gone away. They've gone to be with Jesus. They've been ushered by the angels into the presence of God to be able to say that death is swallowed up in victory. That even while there is an absence here, we look forward to a reunion then. There are those who can't wait for Jesus to come back so they can see their loved ones. Listen, when Jesus comes back, I want to see Jesus. Loved ones can wait just a minute. It's about Jesus. Because he's removed the sting of death. How? By dying himself. He's defeated the grave. How? By being buried in one. And then raising himself. This is the glorious good news of the gospel. That Jesus submitted himself to death so that he could lay down his life. So that he could take it up again. So that he could raise himself from the dead. And when the stone was rolled away, it was not rolled for him to get out. It was rolled for everybody else to see he's not there anymore. And one day that will be true for us, that the graves will open, that trumpet will sound, and the dead will rise, and they'll be glorified instantly. And we who are alive and remain, we then will be instantly glorified and changed. And there are those who who they hope they're here when Jesus comes back. I don't know anybody who says, oh, he can wait. If you really know him, you're ready for him to come and Yeah, change me now. I really don't want to have to die. But here's the reality. If we're following Christ and if we belong to him, we've already died to self. And when this body is put off, it's so that we might be with him with no veil between. It is to be face to face with Christ our Savior. 
Yes, we mourn at death, but death also gives us reason to rejoice because death is defeated. The sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We need to live every day like it's going to be our last. And we need to live every day knowing that when we do die, when it is our time, when it is appointed and we keep that appointment, that if we've trusted Christ, we'll be with him. I'm glad that Jesus grieved at death. Two instances here that we see, one is with Lazarus. The verse that tells us that he wept, it's within the context of Lazarus having died. Jesus knew he was going to die, but he was still a man, and he wept at the grave of Lazarus. And then called him back to life from the dead. And then we see it here with the death of John and the news of the death of John. Jesus sought to be alone. He sought a lonely place. When we go to that place and when we grieve and when we do mourn those who we have lost, Jesus did the same. But understand, Jesus was not by himself, was he? His father was with him. When he went to be alone, he went to pray. And when he went to pray, by the way, he didn't pray to John. Prayers worship. You only worship God. But as he prayed, he knew. Jesus knew before the beginning of creation who John was and what John would do and how John would live and when John would die. But he grieved. Don't ever let anybody tell you there's anything wrong with grieving the dead. But as you grieve, I want you to grieve with joy. We're told to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. And people think that's an either or. No, you know, for the believer, we can do both. We can weep for those who weep in losing a loved one. And we can rejoice with them as they rejoice that that loved one knew Jesus Christ and is gone to be with him. This is the gospel that is to be preached. It's the gospel I preach at every funeral service, whether it is a saved person, a lost person, or an I don't know person. I'm going to preach the truth of the gospel. That the reality is those who have passed from this life have passed into the presence of God. And as they have, they then know and will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Much better if they've confessed it before they've gone. One day you're going to be called to give an account. When we left last Sunday from church, planning to go and visit with Jim and his family, thinking that he would have a long recovery, that God would grant healing, that he would get better. We had no idea that an hour later we'd be getting a phone call that he had passed away. But the first thing his dad said on the phone was, Jim is with Jesus. We don't know the hour. We don't know the day. But we're guaranteed that unless Jesus comes back for us, he will call us to be with him. Are you ready for that day? Are you ready for that day? Oh, death, where is your victory? The stain's been removed. Glory be to Christ. Let's pray together.
Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that when faced with the reality of John's death, that Jesus sought to be alone for a while to come and to spend time with you in prayer. We also thank you for the truth that for those of us who belong to you, death is just a transition. Removes the veil between us and you. To have an assurance to know that the suffering and our death in this life and in this world pulls away everything that stands between us and you and your glory. <coughs> Father, we do pray that you would be with Jim's family, especially those who need to hear and respond to the gospel. We thank you for the faith of his parents. And as we grieve his loss and the several years worth of trial that he's gone through before going to be with you, we thank you that he had such a strong assurance that he knew that he belonged to you, that Christ had died for him. I, I pray you'd impress it upon all of us here, whether it's a, a wicked ruler, whether it's what we would even term an accident, whether it's a sickness, whatever might lead to our death in this life, Remind us that our days are in your hands. You've numbered them. You've set them for us. And if we've repented of our sin and trusted Christ, then that means to step out of this sin-cursed world and into his presence face to face and to then be with him forever. We thank you for the hope of the gospel. And that because of the hope of the gospel, we can preach to those who are living in sin of their need to repent and to trust Christ no matter what it costs us to do so. This morning, we thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we pray these things in his name. Amen.